as we get deeper and deeper into the book of Revelation, you will find out, we will all find out that, um, that Jesus presents everything in the book of Revelation in black and white. And normally, <clears throat> when we talk about things being in black and white, we um, sometimes, some would say it's a little bit immature way of looking at things. But um, you will, we will find more and more as we get into, deeper into the, into the book, and especially now with the, 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 the uh, seven churches, that Jesus Christ is always nudging, and I want to say forcing, but it's not forcing in a bad way, but forcing us to reduce everything to black and white, to reduce the important issues of life as though they were black and white. And you will find that, we will find that today. As we, um, as we begin studying Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna. But before that, I want to always take us back to Psalms because I believe with all my heart that every page read from the book of Revelation means two pages read in the book of Psalms. Every hour spent in the book of Revelation means two hours spent in the book of Psalms. And that way we give ourselves this balance so that uh, we are able to handle the things that the Lord tells us in, in, the, in the book of Revelation that are sometimes heavy and sometimes hard for us to swallow because he does present it to us in that starking contrast that we cannot avoid. So I want to take us to Psalm 130. I want, to, I want us to pray this together, and I have it up here. Let's see if this will... All right. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Say it with me. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. So as you sit there today, wait for the word of God to come to enter your heart through his spirit. As we now go into our study for today. The city of Smyrna was the second largest city in the, uh, in the uh, province of Asia during the, the time of the Roman uh, Empire. It is an ancient city that by the time uh, John had written the book of Revelation had seen two, three resurrections in its lifetime, ravaged and then resurrected again ravaged and then resurrected again. The last resurrection was helped by, uh, by uh, Alexander the Great. It is a city that is, not, that is surrounded by the, uh, is now surrounded by the modern city of Izmir. So it is, it is a, an existing city today. And that city, Izmir, um, uh, has a population as big, uh, almost as big as the city of San Francisco. About a, a million people there in that city now. So it is a modern city right now. Um, and it was originally established around 1000 BC on a small peninsula jutting out of uh, Asia Minor uh, into the Aegean Sea. Um, and it was famous for, one th uh, for many things in, in, in a day. It was a very prosperous city, but it, it, it was said to have been the, the birthplace of the poet, the Greek poet Homer. And we know, we know him from his books. 
um, around 850 BC. This region eventually became part of Asia province during the Roman period and Smyrna between uh, Ephesus, which is located uh, 40 miles south of it along the coast, and Pergamum developed into this wealthy port city and one of the most important cities of the province with a population at that time of the writing of, of Revelation around 100,000 in population, half the size of Ephesus and roughly half the size uh, of um, maybe a quarter of the size of, of Sacramento, of the population of Sacramento. This is the modern city of Izmir today. As you can see, it's a very modern city, a very lively city at that. And there are still ruins, uh, you know, interspersed in, in, in the midst of that city, of the old city. Um, and here's a, the ruins of the Agora, or the marketplace. Still quite a bit of uh, stuff to see there in, in, in Smyrna. I was, uh, we were with the... Um, the Osbournes uh, last Sabbath or Saturday, Saturday night and um, um, Ken showed me some pictures of, that, they, that they took when they visited these seven churches and um, this is the marketplace, the Agora in Smyrna. This is the ruins of the Temple of Athena. There are a lot of temples in the, in the, in the main cities in those days. Uh, this is one to a, a goddess, the goddess of Athena. There are other many gods or go and goddesses uh, whose temples, uh, you know, were spread far and wide in the, in the city and in, in, in the different cities and places um, in the Roman Empire in those days. And one of the distinctions for Christians for a very long time in Smyrna was that this was the place that Polycarp pastored, and this was also the place where he was uh, martyred. Who was Polycarp? Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was the pastor of the church there in Smyrna after this, the writing of the book of Revelation. And also, what's, what's important about Polycarp is he is the direct connection we have to John, who wrote the book of Revelation. He was the one who told his own disciple, Polycarp's disciple, Irenaeus, that it was John who wrote the book of Revelation. He's the connection that we have, that we, have, we know for sure that the, uh, at least with, you know, uh, within reason, we, we, can, we, can, we can say that the book of Revelation was written by John, the beloved, or John, the apostle of Jesus Christ. And so now we've come to the... Um, to the text itself. So open your, your Bibles with you. If, if you prefer, there is also a note inserted in your bulletin. Go ahead and fill that out and, and, and write whatever you need to write, uh, notes and stuff like that. We're going to, first of all, spend a few minutes of our time here um, asking the Lord Jesus, what are you doing? What are you saying to us through the direct reading of, of your word? So we start with verse 8. And we find here the same, almost the same introduction. And you will find this introduction across the seven churches as Jesus Christ presents himself and, and addresses you as the individual as though you represent the whole church. And he says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words, there again those words, that are cut from the Old Testament phrase, the prophetic utterances of those prophets long ago, Jesus Christ borrows those words. I wouldn't say borrow. Those were his words in the Old Testament. Now these are his words also to his New Testament believers, to you and me. He says, 
Thus says the Lord. That's really what it says. Thus says the Lord. Uh, uh, thus says he, uh, or, 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 or let me just, just read it as it is. There, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. He always introduces himself because of what's about to come. Verse 9. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. It's quite interesting here that the word that he uses for the word affliction is really the worst, the worst word that you could... This is probably the one, the, the one word in Greek that, that qualifies for that term persecution. Because literally the word, means, the word means to crush somebody, to squash somebody down. So then affliction, the noun form of that would be then the, the direct suffering, the, the squashing, the crushing of, of, of people, of, of those believers in, in, Ephes, I mean, in, in Smyrna. So you start to wonder, what is crushing them? What is crushing them? And um, you find that word poverty is also, there are several words that, that, that Jesus could have used to describe their poverty in, um, in, in Smyrna. But the word that he used there is one that, that, that states that this is a continued state of destitution. It's a, in other words, they have, they have been reduced to poverty. The meaning of that verb form of that same word is to change to a state of poverty. In other words, what, it is, what Jesus Christ is telling you and me is that these guys, these Christians in that city were not originally poor. But they had been forced to be, uh, to, uh, uh, into destitution, into poverty. Um, they became impoverished as a result of sustained and intense crushing and, the, and, and squashing of society around them. That's what it's saying to us. Verse 10, I know your affliction and your poverty. Parts of verse 9 still. Even though you are rich, Jesus Christ inserts, you know, he says, look, yes, I, you may think you have nothing, but, you know, I think very, this is perhaps the best compliment Jesus Christ could ever give anyone. And he gives it to those people that have, in, in Smyrna that have, chosen, that have chosen poverty rather than accommodation with society around them. And so he continues, I know the slander, there's a third part right there, which explains to us why they're afflicted and why they're being reduced to a state of poverty. Uh, I know the slander of the, of, on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They're being slandered. That word is blasphemia, the, the, the same word for blasphemy. Evil speech. So you can just imagine what's going on here. We can, we can uh, more than imagine it, we can read about it in the book of Acts. Do you remember what happens to Paul? When Paul was slandered by those people while, while he was worshiping in the temple in, in Jerusalem, of course, those were, you know, so-called Jews uh, that did it. And what, what happened was then, you know, they, the Roman authorities had to take him to prison. The prison cell was a, was a holding tank in those days. It was not the punishment of Paul. He was put in prison because he was going to wait trial. That's where they put everybody in, in, in trial, uh, before, before their trial and before you're convicted. So prison is a place where you are held before you are tried, and if you are tried to be, and if you found to be, um, if you are found to be innocent, then you're let go. Sometimes they'll torture you before they let you go. And then uh, it's also a place that they will hold you before you are executed 
if it, your, your offense merits execution. It is funny, it is, it is interesting also to note that Jesus Christ here is referring to Jews. His act, he actually means that, he uses that word in a very positive sense because what, is his, what, what, he's, what he's saying is this, that a true Jew would not be slandering a neighbor, and yet these people call themselves Jews. This is not a blanket condemnation of, of Judaism, you understand. This is simply Jesus Christ saying to them, uh, to, uh, uh, to us, that those that purport to be represent to represent him and and yet they are doing everything that 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 god does not want them to do so that is the situation that we have of our brethren back then in that city of smyrna they are severely afflicted been reduced to poverty and they're 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 having to face the slander of the people around them especially another minority group the jews who had a synagogue in that place and you know, um, I was reading, uh, you know, for, preparing for the sermon, and, and I realized that in, those, in, in, in the first century AD, um, the Jews comprised about 7% of the population. Uh, the Roman Empire had about 30-some million in population throughout the entire empire, and uh, there were about 6 to 7 million Jews. And the Christians saw themselves as, as Jews at first, or at least from, from the outside looking in, they were part of that, of that grouping. And it, it became convenient as well and helpful for the Christians to call themselves Jews initially and to associate themselves with Jews. Because why? Because uh, in the Roman Empire, you cannot practice religion with, without the approval of, of, the, uh, of the government. And because the Jews had been practicing their religion since the ancient times, they became what's called um, uh, collegia licita, a, a group that is legitimate, a legit group. And so the Christians piggybacked on that. But once the Jews started to slander these Christians and, call, you know, and, and report them to the authorities and, and they're starting to end up in prison, you will find out that they will end up in prison, prison eventually. Then it became a problem to the Christians. What, do I, what are we going to do now? We don't have a covering above us anymore. Those Jews, at least in Smyrna, uh, have, are rejecting us. Verse 10. Jesus' answer to their, to their plight is, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. It is a normal fear. It is, it is, a it is fear, distress over impending pain. Much like what you would go through, what we would go through. Say, for example, I've seen my wife go through a lot of operations in, in, in our marriage. And every single time, I, I think I'm, I'm more in, in distress. Uh, before she, uh, the oper especially when she comes out of the, the, the operating room and she's in recovery. That, that, those are, you know, and, and she just starts describing her pain 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10. And, you know, then you start to have fear. So they were fearful, but they were not terrified. That's not the word that Jesus Christ uses. They're not terrified. So in a way, Jesus Christ is commending them because, you know, their fear is the normal fear that we would go through. Neither do they lack moral courage. It's, that's not the word that he uses. He simply uses the word that every human being goes through, a trepidation over impending pain and suffering. Jesus Christ would explain why. He says, beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. The result of that slander of the, of the so-called Jews is that they would now face imprisonment, the holding tank, 
And then Jesus says, some of you will not make it out alive. Because he says, and for 10 days you will have affliction. By the way, the, the, the 10 days is a, round, it's a small period of time. It's a round figure uh, similar to the 10 days in Daniel. Remember Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 and 14, when Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, said to the king's uh, handler, said, you know, uh, can you please try us for 10 days? And then they were found to be better after 10 days. It says, in 10 days, you will have affliction. And then he says, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It is quite interesting that Jesus Christ's answer to, their, to, their, to this intense, immense pressure that these Christians are going through is to say, keep going. Don't turn around. Don't try to run away. If you must, if you must, be faithful unto death. It is, it's not to say that you know, this is some kind of masochistic desire to, you know, for, for harm to come unto you so that you can witness. No, it's not like that at all. It's not like that. He, he's simply saying, just go all the way like I went all the way. And I will give you, he says, the crown of life. That's not the diadem. That is the Stephanos. That is the victory crown. That crown. That is given at the end of a contest and sometimes posthumously and somebody dies after the contest. And then we, we finish it in verse 11 where it says, Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Three times this, in the entire scripture, this phrase, the second death appears. They all appear in this book, in the book of Revelation. Here in this text, in Revelation 20, verse 6, in relation to resurrection, or, uh, and Revelation 21, verse 8, in relation to the lake of fire. What is the second death? It is basically, it speaks of death from which there will forever be no restoration and no resurrection. That is, the second death is an eternity of non-existence. He says, those that conquer will not, will not go through that. In other words, there will be life for you, even if some of you, or all of you for that matter, would give your life, would go all the way for me. Wow. Did you find in this text anything at all about a reprimand that Jesus Christ had against Ephesus, for example? There was no reprimand. To the, to, the, to the man, to the person, every single one of them, this is a church united in its desire to go all the way for Jesus Christ. You will notice also what, uh, that there is missing, there, what's missing here. In Ephesus, there is a, a small group, a faction within the church that has a very different vision of what it means to be faithful to Jesus Christ. And they're more or less what we could, would call the accommodationists. Come on, let's lighten up a little bit. Let's lighten up a little bit. Those are the Nicolaitans. They're not there in this church. Have you noticed that? They're not there in this church. They're nowhere mentioned in this church. And to the, to the man, to the, to the, to the person... Jesus Christ commends this church. Every single one of them seems to be 
seems to be to have accepted the role, hard though it may be, and they are now they have now become destitute. And so we, you know, we we think of this and we think of our own plight in our own, you know, in our own lives and the pain and the suffering that we go through on a daily basis as a church and even as families and even as individuals. And we ask ourselves, what is Jesus Christ telling us about our own pain and our own, our own suffering? What can these wonderful Christians in Smyrna teach us today? And I want to give you just four things, four quick things. And the first is, suffering is certain. It is not a matter of if, but a matter of when. I was reading a book by C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. And he makes the, uh, and he, he makes the, uh, the case, a very powerful case at that, when he says, you know, could the, world, could the Lord have created a world with no pain? Could he not have made, it, made the world so that if I decide to use this fixed, you know, this fixed property of this, of, this, of this part of nature, not to sing a beautiful song, but to bludgeon you on the head, could God not have created things so that this would turn into jelly? So that it would be impossible for us to harm anybody? And the answer is, not if he wanted to create a world where everyone could love each one. Because if you're incapable of making a choice for yourself to love someone or not to love someone, if, you're, if the choice for you has been taken out to not love someone, then all also the choice for you has been taken out to love someone. It cannot happen if we are to exist in a world that we exist today. The fixed, the fixed properties of nature are there for us to utilize however we wish but God would want us to utilize them in the most loving way. And since we chose not to, when we, you know, and God's, the Father sent His Son to show us how to truly be such the loving person all the way to the end, all the way to the end, that this is the man that, that would love God and love God would love in return. Suffering is not an if, it's a when. Verse 9, I know your affliction and your poverty. Jesus Christ is not surprised. Do you remember what, uh, what Jesus says in Mark 4, verse 17? He says, but they have no root and endure only for a while. Then when trouble or persecution arises, remember that, when trouble arises, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of time. You will have pain. And that pain may not necessarily be a bad thing. It may not, may not necessarily be a sinful thing as well. It's just part of being in this world too. I remember to the day when my wife comes home and she said that she had had an injury on her neck and, and what had happened was that she was taking care of this patient of hers, uh, 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 an invalid, and, um, and, and, and she started to fall and she caught the kid's fall. And by catching her fall, she injured herself. 
and now she's in pain, perhaps all the days of her life. It was not anybody's fault. It's just part of being here in this world. Milton, my body's starting to ache too, just by being around, just by living. And Milton is finding out the same, same thing. So when trouble or pain or persecution comes, it's not if. And we remember the words of Jesus Christ himself. I have said this, I have said this to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you face persecution. And then he says, but take courage. I have conquered the world. So beautiful. Number two. Suffering is not only um, was certain, suffering is also necessary. Take a look at this. Take a look at this. In, Re in, in Revelation 2.10, uh, it says, that you may be tested. Well, somehow our suffering has a rhyme, so rhyme and reason in it. There, there's, there's something to be gained by what we go through. I am getting a little bit confused with this clicker. Remember what James 1, 2-4 says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may, have, you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans, this is a good one in Romans. You, you, you may want to memorize this. Uh, Romans 5, 1-5. Not now, later. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Note that phrase, the glory of God. The glory of God is the goodness of God. The character of God that oozes with goodness and love, that is his glory. How do we partake of that glory? Verse 3. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. We share in His glory as we go through our suffering, and our characters are formed into the character of God. It is hard, I know, and it's hard for those of you that are experiencing pain day in and day out. Not just physical pain, but emotional pain. And a lot of times, you know, and I include myself in that, that our tendency is to kick back, I mean to kick somebody back, you know, and, and, to, and to retaliate. Because we cannot handle our pain. But there is something to be gained by patiently going through our pain like Jesus did in his. Number three, have no fear because suffering may be given, but it's not always there. It is limited. In their case, the suffering they're going through, at least the intensity of it, will last only 10 days. It says 10 days. I don't know if that was completely, you know, uh, uh, 10 days, literal days, but it's a short time. In other words, what he's trying to say here is this. There will be an 11th day for you and that 11th day will not have so much pain. It will not be as painful as it was during those days. 
So he's saying there's limits to pain. You will not always, the Lord will not allow it. You will live to see the end of your suffering. And if you don't, it's all right too. Because I will resurrect you from the dead. You will continue on living. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No testing has overtaken you that is not common to anyone, to everyone. God is faithful and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. Such powerful, powerful promise. And the last, think of suffering as a form of witness as well. You know, Revelation um, 10 says, be faithful unto death. And he's saying this as a witness. Luke 9.23 says, if anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If you've, if you've taken the cross of Christ, tell me if it's not painful at all. It is. But you know, you don't have... I'm going to call somebody up here now, and she reminded me of this text, and so I included it in my sermon today. Ilyana, would you please come up here? Because she said, when she was bearing her own pain, she said, I did not bear it alone. There were people that helped me bear, carry my cross. Because in Galatians 6.2, it says, Bear one another's burden. Suffering is an opportunity to show, to witness, to the love of God that exists within this room when we carry each other's burdens and therefore make our burdens lighter than they are. Ileana, I want to ask you just a few questions before we, uh, before we end our service today. I, I learned about your um, experience when you were younger um, in that dinner that we had for Roots, the Roots, Roots dinner. When I realized that you, um, well, I don't want to say it myself. Can you tell us about that bitter experience, that painful experience in your life when you were young? I'm from Argentina. I lived in the, dor in the dorms since I was 13 years old. When I was 17 years old, I was still at the academy. My brother was two years older. He was in college. And my sister lived in the same town. My parents lived six hours away from where we lived. And in 1992, I was 17 my senior year, and I received a phone call from my parents on December 22nd, and they say, we are not going to be able to go to your sister's home and to spend Christmas with you guys. The next day, my brother bought a ticket and he went by bus to see my parents so they wouldn't have to spend Christmas by themselves. That same day that my brother was going to my parents' house, they called back and they said, we changed our minds. We're going to try to make it. We're going to find a way. We're going to go. And I said, well, now you need to wait for my brother because he's on his way to <laughs> see you guys. And they said, we're going to wait for him. And they did. December 24th, they started driving to spend Christmas with me and my sister. And an hour before they were supposed to arrive, 
they had a car accident. I received a phone call and they said, the police said, your grandma, your mother, and your father died in that accident. I didn't know how to react. I was in shock, in denial. I was overwhelmed, very sad. But what happened to my brother? I wanted to know what happened to my brother. And I still had hope that he would leave. And they said, we don't know yet. They hung up. They called back again a few minutes later. And they said, he's unconscious. He's on his way to the hospital right now. And I'm battling with all these emotions. I didn't know what to do with the, the horrible news about my parents and my grandma. But my brother was still alive. I was getting ready to go to the hospital. A few minutes later, I received a phone call just before going to the hospital. Your brother just died on the way to the hospital. That was December 24th, during daytime. We have our custom in Argentina is to open presents at midnight, to spend time with your family, to toast. That night, the Christmas Eve at 12 at midnight, my sister and I had to go to the morgue and identify their bodies. The next day, as is the custom in Argentina, we had a ceremony in a big auditorium, three or four times bigger than the Pine Hills Auditorium is right now. We had to go to the ceremony. It was full of people. And in the afternoon, we went to the cemetery to bury them. We don't have time like they do here, like a week or two, to make arrangements to call people. The next day, December 25th, I had to bury my family. Wow. And I remember when I first heard that story from, from um, Cam, actually, your oldest, older daughter. I said, wow. And I, and I could easily uh, relate because my father also died December 24th. And I remember the pain that I, I, that I described to us what you went through after, right after uh, the burial and the days that followed. I went through what later on I found out it was normal and it was the stages of grief. I didn't know it at the time. At the beginning it was shock. I could not believe what I was hearing. I was in denial. I didn't want to accept it. I went through anger, lots of anger. I went through bitterness. Jealousy of my friends that they still had their parents and they still had their siblings. They could celebrate Christmas with them. They could celebrate birthday parties with them. I was very, very bitter against God. My dad was a pastor. He served him all his life. My, dad, my mom was a teacher. She worked for, uh, for the schools, for the Aventi schools all her life. I, I was so angry at God, very, very angry. I went through depression, deep depression. I could not understand why that happened. I was very, very sad, very overwhelmed. And I went from no sleeping at all because I had nightmares to sleeping most of the time because I didn't want to feel the pain. I went through suicidal thoughts. And get this, it was not because I didn't want to live anymore. It was because I had no idea how to live with so much pain. It was overwhelming. It was excruciating pain, and it was invisible. I could not explain it to anybody, and nobody could 
feel it for me. Uh, now, how, how did the Lord start to heal you, heart, help you deal with the pain, cope with the pain? There were a lot of things involved. One huge thing that helped me, it was that even though I was angry at God, I still prayed. Even though I was bitter and I questioned him a lot, I prayed and I read the Bible. And sometimes I would go by myself and just under a tree, sitting down under a tree and reading the Bible, trying to make sense, still believing in the promises of God, raising up my hands and saying, please don't leave me because I don't know how I'm going to be able to survive this. Maybe five, ten years from now, I will be okay. I will be able to tell my story to other people, but from now till I get to ten, ten years from now, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Please, please help me. And I could hear, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's why we memorize scriptures, kids. Because you never know when you're going to need that and when you're going to hear from God. Last question, Ileana, is you mentioned yesterday when we talked about this uh, that uh, the, the cross that you carried, you had to carry alone and nobody could carry it for you. But there were those that assisted you as you carried your own cross. Can you, can you tell us briefly about uh, uh, the, those, those individuals that helped you, that assisted yes. you? The church helped me a lot. The church helped me financially so I could finish college. I could go through college. My family, my friend's family became my family. I had new siblings and I had new parents. People took care of me. I had my dad's letters that I kept reading over and over again. I could hear his voice, his advice. I used to sing hymns. I sang praises to God. Singing gave me a lot of hope, kept me going. Praising music was a huge part of our family. I kept praising God. And I read the Psalms. David was my best friend at those days. His, he, the way he wrote his pain, the way, the way he expressed his pain through poetry and through those songs that he wrote, it was as if, he, as, if, as if he was talking to me and saying, I understand your pain. Now, his cross was very different from mine. But the pain that we go through is the same. Now, you have your own cross. I don't know what it is. And in Luke 9, Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. He didn't say, pick up somebody else's cross. He said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. And that's what I had to realize. I had to pick up my own cross, and I had to walk through the pain with David, through the valley of the shadow of death. I will be with you. And But then in Galatians, yes. in Galatians 6.2, it says, carry each other's burdens. And that's what people did to me. That's what the community, the church, my friends, they helped me carry my burden. Even Jesus going through the way to Golgotha had Joseph of Arimathea helping him lessen the burden of the cross. Now, Joseph was not, was not going to be crucified. He didn't have a, a thorns on his head. He wasn't beaten or anything like that. 
but he helped Jesus through the process of going to Golgotha. And we all have to pick up our own crosses. Nobody can feel your pain for you. Nobody can carry your cross, but you have the church, you have friends, you have family that will help you lessen the burden. And you have God and you have to trust God's promises because He's faithful and He will help you till the end. You got to be faithful till the end, even if it's a point of death, and He will give you the crown of life. Amen. I can't say any more, any better, <laughs> anything better than that. Thank you so much, Eliana, for sharing. Thank you. I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to, reveal, to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. And then he says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And then he concludes, No, in all these things we are, more, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let us pray. Father God, thank you that in this world we have pain and sorrow and suffering. We don't ask it of ourselves, but when they do come, we ask for strength to keep going to the very end, whatever that end may look like. Humble your people, O oh God, that we may want to suffer with you and share also in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.